This podcast is brought to you by StoreMaven. I won't lie, I am an employee at StoreMaven, so I want to tell you a little bit about why it's the greatest company on earth. If you're interested in growing your app in any way, organically, paid, both, we have tools to help you do it, whether it's optimizing your creatives, measuring the success and the effect of different efforts that you're taking, or just telling you what people look for in an app. We're here to help you do it. That's what people buy in VN. They buy something they value. And if you're doing the same a little better than your neighbor, you're not necessarily adding values. But you have really to understand your players, like what do they care about enough that they would perceive this value in your product. Welcome to Mobile Growth and Pancakes, a podcast by Stormaven. We break down how and why mobile apps grow. In each episode, we invite a mobile growth expert onto the show to break down a specific mobile growth strategy, how it worked, why it worked, and what they would do differently. I'm your host, Esther Schatz. Welcome to Mobile Growth and Podcast. I'm joined today by Sophie Vo. Sophie, can you introduce yourself for everyone? Yeah, sure. So hi, everyone. Um, so um, I'm Sophie, and I'm, uh, I've been working in the industry for the past uh, 12 years. And in my experience, I worked in uh, mostly mobile free-to-play um, uh, companies. Uh, I worked in different places uh, in Finland, um, in Berlin. Uh, previously, also I worked in Berlin, went to Finland, back and forth, also in France. And the company I worked at, um, Gameloft, Wuga, Rovio, and now I'm uh, at Voodoo and uh, leading a studio that I opened a year and a half ago in Berlin to start a new venture inside Voodoo to explore casual games, as Voodoo is more known for hyper-casual games. Amazing. I mean, I guess uh, before we jump into things, what uh, what led you to kind of expand past hyper-casual? Obviously, it's been a huge, huge trend and huge success in the industry and doesn't seem to be going anywhere. What, uh, you know, what's, what's leading you to push towards more the casual area? Yeah, so I would say I answer here more um, also from a point of view of a company as we do uh, very established in hyper casual. Hyper casual is definitely a very viable business model uh, that came uh, actually more in the front the past two, three years uh, and uh, making revenue mostly from games executed really fast, released really fast very low CPI and uh, revenues from ads. So that's the business model. And uh, when we look at uh, things in the bigger context in the market, um, it's uh, it's very demanding and it's not a very also high uh, barrier of entry for hypercasual because once you have a hit, uh, you release, everyone can copy you quickly because it can be executed so fast. It's not a secret tech. So it's really um, time sensitive. And uh, to find what uh, will work, you have to test a lot of ideas. So in hypercasual, so it's very intense in the sense that every week you test many prototypes, you see what sticks. And the ones that have a low, um, uh, low CPI and a good LTV uh, make the business case, I don't know, for a payback within a week, then are launched quickly. So in this context, um, then it's very demanding for companies, whether it's Voodoo or any hyper-casual company, to survive uh, in the long term. That means you need to generate heat quickly 
all the time. And um, I can definitely say uh, Voodoo uh, made the success for sure, not based on luck, but with a very good network of developers who really uh, can create great games, hyper-casual games, and release it quickly. However, it doesn't give um, a certain serenity in the long term where from the moment we start to miss a hit in a month, then it starts to create a bit more insecurity, not panic, but a bit of a threat for the future because uh, as a contrast for casual games, as we know, like making their revenues based on long-term engagement, in-app purchase, like a really engaged audience, once you have this hit, it can stay for years and actually um, support the whole company. So uh, as a company, it makes um, also a lot of sense, like moving a bit away or expanding from the intensity of hyper-casual where you need to come up with a hit all the time uh, to something more, a bit more uh, serene and long-term that could actually ensure the viability, stability of a company over years. For sure. And I think that ties in, you know, um, well with, uh, with the topic you're quite familiar with. When we look at product and marketing, I mean, I think with hyper-casual, you're looking for that quick hit, right? It's a, it's a product that you kind of release out into the wild. You release your marketing, you let it run its course, and then you move on to the next thing. Whereas when you're looking at a casual game, both teams are maintaining some kind of long-term strategy. You're having releases, you're iterating on the game, you're changing your messaging, you're aiming for new audiences. How, you know, how do you see the, how do two teams like this take it in the long run when KPIs tend to be different, the way you approach the market is different? How do you kind of marry these two concepts together? Yeah, that's, uh, I would say, a big uh, challenge. Um, I, my experience is casual games, so I definitely come with um, a different knowledge and even approach of launching a game when uh, operating in a hyper-casual company. And um, I would say there's some uh, overlap here between casual and hyper-casual, where I would say these days, I think a mentality to testing fast uh, what you plan to launch is uh, very key. Especially marketability is a big, big topic. Um, you can have the best game in the world, but if you cannot market it, then uh, you, you're done. So that's the first thing to verify really early on. And I would say uh, this is where both uh, join the same strategy. Like when you develop a casual game, like uh, in our studio, when we started to prototype the first one, we were already putting it out to look at the CPI, the target market, and see a signal of early performance, at least so we know that we are not starting with a niche product that uh, will start with a high CPI and that we will never be able to um, make up for our payback. So that's uh, things that we take from hyper-casual. I would say where the challenge is, however, um, in hyper-casual, you, you optimize everything around a lower CPI. So the game basically... You release, you need to have a good D1, D7, maybe I would say D1, D3 retention is just enough. Uh, Playtime, you put the ad system, framework, etc. But uh, the CPI, even to the cent level, can make a big difference in the revenue and the business case. So all the marketing efforts are towards optimizing uh, CPI to the lowest level. And um, where also it's uh, pretty straightforward, the creatives are basically the game. So in hyper-casual, 
you record a rough of a gameplay and that's basically your creative. You then maybe tweak some elements, but you what you see is what you get. So it's a very straightforward marketing strategy. And as a contrast for uh, casual games, it's uh, not that straightforward because the game is much more complex, uh, uh, rich, and you just showing the gameplay may not be enough when you look at casual competition, uh, that you don't, um, yeah, you show more the fantasy of the game. You show the dream of the game, the story, what it could look like after three years. So you show the promise in the long term. And that is also a different skill and different way of approaching marketing. And like in creatives, even in the targeting, like hyper-casual is very broad. There's no targeting at all. And uh, casual, I would argue, depending on the type of games you're making, you definitely need to know a bit about the audience, uh, why, uh, who you design the game for. And um, also casual is very optimized around profitability. So not just a low CPI. So I can give examples here. When we do testing um, on a casual game, of course, we can chase for the lowest CPI and show creatives that will have a lot of clicks, instance, but in the end, probably also we see a lower LTV engagement because it's a bit sometimes misleading. It doesn't match exactly to what the game is. And in the end, it doesn't make sense to just um, optimize the marketing around a lower CPI where in the end, what you want to get is the profitability and the return of your spends. And the model here is like what... Well, the payback time, for example, in hypercasual could be under three days. Then you have your cash back, for example, or seven days. Uh, and casual, you will not see your money back until a certain time. So you have to invest also a lot upfront. So it's based more, much more on projections, LTV estimates, like how is the curve, uh, long-term retention of your game, and how much you are willing to invest and be patient to wait for, uh, for it to come back. So this is like, I would say this is the main challenge. Like this, um, the sense of time is very different in hyper casual to casual. Like just yeah, the model. Absolutely. Like <laughs> like when you think of payback, it's like okay, I I know that I will win this back in a week. I can be serene and reuse this cash for the next game. In casual, you are more in depth for a while. Even in development, it takes a bit longer time to develop a game. Where hyper casual, in a month you have your hit. Uh, in casual, it could be. I don't know, six months, 12 months, depends on how long you're in soft launch to iterate the game. And it's a different mindset also in terms of uh, financial uh, financial model. And that's, I would say, where the challenge requires a bit of discussion, education, you know, from both sides to uh, look at these models very differently. So, yeah, I think it's it's one of the things that historically challenges you know, challenges the ability to optimize a casual game because you have on the marketing side, you're looking at, you know, the performance in as real time as you possibly can, right? So sometimes you'll have an ad that, like you said, it's driving clicks, it's bringing that traffic. But if you don't have a player who's eventually, you know, it's it's not the download, it's the in-app purchase, right? That's what we're looking at much more um, in casual. And so then you kind of have, I find uh Areas where it's very easy to clash because you're saying, well, this is what brings the most market appeal. So add it into the product and product is saying, well, this is what the product is. So update your marketing. And, you know, I think one of the questions is who, who gets to be the driver of that decision? You know, when you see that there's a mismatch between what the audience is looking for and what they're actually getting in the game, 
who who wins? Who wins that battle, right? Like who, how do you go through, navigate that process of, you know, how do we create this synergy between our two sides? It's, uh, you are, you're touching a really, uh, I would say, a very, uh, uh, I would say, like current point uh, that is at the, at the lips of many marketing and product teams because it's a constant debate. And that's also in the phase we are in at the moment we were getting soft launch where we have also often regularly this debate, like, okay, this is on product side, this is what we want to show, but on marketing, we have to look at performance. And uh, of course, it's not black and white and a good middle ground we have found. And I think it's a way as well to go where you have to look at a different strategy, a marketing strategy and the performance of these different strategies. So let's say in a game, casual, that attracts a female audience, simulation audience, and uh, you use the known marketing strategy, so higher CPI probably, but it, it like the creative resonates with the audience. They see what is the fantasy of the game. Uh, they are engaged in other similar products and no surprises when they get in the game and they will probably engage and spend, etc. So that's kind of a track we know. And I think one that is a good opportunity to consider and we see as well, uh, even big companies like Playrix, uh, others as well, trying all type of ads, but we could look at it and like, oh, it looks misleading. And then the strategy is to add the mini games of the creatives inside the game. So then people can actually find it. It's a, it's a patch. I don't know how much it performs, but it's a patch that uh, I would say could, could make sense. I would love to experiment uh, that more to understand how it uh, works. And I think what is important here, uh, where now I look at more ad revenue check, like maybe you will, um, in your strategy um, of expansion in marketing, you will acquire uh, maybe lower quality of players, like with the lower CPI, creatives that are like uh, drive uh, traffic instance. Um, but maybe the way these people will engage with the product is also at the level of the CPI. So I mean by that in the same way of hyper-casual models, maybe they will engage with ads very early on. And this, is, this would be even better to have actually segmented journeys in the game based on the player behavior. So let's say this core that I acquired more in hyper-casual way with some creatives that are not exactly the game. Um, maybe they will play for three days, but they engage a lot, uh, engage a lot with ads. And maybe then they pay back for the cost. So I think there are some opportunistic uh, segments to look at when you um, try to acquire a different audience. And then it's just about looking at the performance of each and see which one makes sense, finding like the sweet spot, you know? So I'm quite open, I would say, on being on product side to definitely try a lot of things on marketing to lower the CPI. But then we have to really look at the performance of the segments and how do we monetize uh, for different strategies. So maybe in Apple Chase is not the way for this maybe lower quality court, like when I say lower quality in, in Apple Chase, but maybe ads, for example, being exposed to a lot of ads could be then a strategy that works better. So basically you're finding the balance of, you know, what marketing trends can teach you combined with what's actually happening in the product. Where is it possible to adjust the product versus where is it you know, this is uh, this is not an area that we're able, you know, if we're not able to create an ad-based uh, structure that's not how the game is working, then, all right, it's great that this has the best CPI, but it's not going to cut it for, for kind of how we move forward. I think that makes a lot of sense of having both sides be able to adapt 
to some kind of medium where it's not just, uh, you know, product saying, bring me this type of user now, and this is the product, and this is what you have. And it's not marketing saying, well, this is who's coming <laughs> and figure it out and make it work. Um, you know, which I, I think makes a lot of sense. Let's talk a little more about the process of launching a game, because I think it's something that a lot of companies fall into two categories. One is they spend very little work um, kind of optimizing that soft launch phase or they'll focus entirely on product or entirely on marketing. Um, or you have companies who could get stuck in, in years-long soft launch or you know, constantly pushing back the roll date. How do you, what do you think is the right way to make this process efficient? You know, what, what are the things you need to answer in a soft launch before you're ready to move to hard launch? Yeah, it's very, uh, so like... Um... Well, a very also a tricky question. I think in both definitely strategy works, but uh, um, I would say at the very beginning, I like to approach product development always like, what are your riskiest uh, assumptions? So when you start a product, is what are if you go like completely brand new, then what do you need to verify quickly? Uh, let's say for something very innovative that is not really proven. I would definitely test from the beginning the marketing appeal because then you start to set on a, on a theme, art style setting, and then you don't want to do risking at the end of the journey <laughs> when you find out that your game is just too expensive uh, or players too expensive to acquire. Basically, make sure you don't, you want to make sure you don't spend a ton of money developing a game that doesn't have the market appeal to justify yes, that. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I think the product market fit is really important at the beginning. And uh, of course, I um, I wrote a piece about that, but it's not because you have a low CPI at the beginning that you have a guarantee to have it low later in development, six months or 12 months after when you develop it, right? So it is uh, not at all guarantee. However, it's very clear that if you start with a high CPI, there's a little chance that when you uh, try again, that it will be much lower, you know? So at least it helps to eliminate early all concepts that might be a little too niche or too oversaturated, that you're competing directly, you know, against uh, big, big players and you will not match here the spend in marketing or even like the ability to have a better product. So that's something I, I would test early on, no matter what is the situation. And I think uh, then there are different schools, of course, of uh, soft launching and uh, where you go like quick and dirty and you release and then maybe you crash in the way because you are not set, unfortunately, to scale the game and operate it for years in live ops or then you are patching it. And I've worked on games like that where they were launched quickly. And then I was part of unfortunate uh, live ops teams, like look at the quality and refactoring everything just to make it work. And it's not fun for the teams coming after. Um, so I think here it's important what is the time sensitivity to define that. So if you're working on something really, really innovative, I don't know, supercell model, and you're confident that this is something that will be big, no matter what the time, the trend, because you are, yeah, you are bringing something really new. Um, maybe, maybe it's worth taking the time. But when there's a, a trend, I don't know, like. For a while, there was uh, like all these hybrid titles are start to launch. There also an emergence of merge games. Uh, I would argue here that uh, being uh, before or in the party is quite important because uh, from uh, after a while, if the market gets saturated with a new trend, then you end up as well with a very high CPI. 
I think uh, there's a there's an example you just reminded me of. You mentioned Playrix, so they have those uh, those the famous ads, I guess, in our, in our industry now of the mini games of kind of to mm-hmm. save the girl and help her out. And uh, I think it was about maybe it was a year ago, maybe it was less, where a studio launched an entire kind yes. of a game concept around save the girl. Yes. That's that's time sensitive, right? Because you're looking to kind of capitalize on this trend that Playrix kind of established and, and they uh, they soared to the top of the charts as soon as they did. So that's something where you're saying you have to be stricter with yourself about time and, and you can iterate after and optimize after. Yeah. No. Yeah, so you have to be, you have to know if time is actually a factor here of success or not. And if it is, you have to be pragmatic on launching quickly. I mean, even we find ourselves uh, as well, like uh, not like, taking too much time and trying to overpolish everything and launching and, and just having good enough basically to get ready and scale the game. And, and also the other thing to keep in mind is, um, I think also about team motivation. And uh, I have, um, like in my team, I have people who have worked, you know, in big companies like Buga, King and uh, after a while, some of them of course are tired to work on games for one, two years, and these games didn't launch, and they just worked on one or two titles over the past five years, and it's exhausting, and uh, yeah. now there's more hunger, I would say, to release and test a lot of game out, see what happens, and uh, invest in the game if one like, shows traction. So I think there's also another dynamic now where uh, game teams are a bit tired, actually, of this long journey, where you're not sure and do you have the energy to go for another round again, like almost like console development, you know, but console development, you ship the game eventually. Free to play is like you work, you invest in, and then you stop. And it's really hard emotionally. Such a good point. I don't think I've ever heard anyone bring up internal, you know, like you have KPIs that you decide on measuring, but it's it's a really good point that if you're going to have a great game and, and one that can maintain a life cycle, you need a team to support it. And if they have no energy left, and they, I've, I've hit, I've hit, you know, we've, uh, we've worked with a lot of apps and concept who, who we all hit that stage of just like, oh, this game again, I can't believe we're still, we're still not live and we're still hitting these. It's, it's really important if you can't keep people excited about a game, there's no there's no promise of the end, right? It's not like no matter what, at the end of the day, you have a game that really hits. You might mm-hmm. never launch. You might never launch well. You might get scrapped, you know, really soon after. It's demoralizing. Mm-hmm. A very good point. Do you ever worry about, you know, when it comes to kind of earlier testing, do you worry at all about exposure and kind of uh, the audience being um you know, seeing a game before it's ready, when it's in a rougher stage, before you prepare press announcements, what's that like? I think it's uh, always like a risk. And there are different practices in the industry where you uh, launch under, you know, like a, a dark label, uh, and you know, where it's not like the brand of the company, but it's just, or even like some of us, we launch on our developer account. So for example, I have myself also a developer account and we test quickly ideas like that. So there's there's some mitigation, but not fully ways of preventing it, especially in hyper-casual. There's, there's a lot of uh, watch, uh, you know, from studios to each other to know the accounts and, and copy quickly. So the thing is, in hypercasual, it makes a lot of sense. It's very strategic. If you can copy earlier than your competitors, see what they are testing, you test the same thing within a week and you can 
uh, steal the opportunity in a way. I would say for casual games, you can still get the idea early, but the more, and uh, that, that's what I, uh, what I would advise when approaching a product development, especially a game that can last for years, don't try to copy the neighbor uh, because in the end, you're just competing directly. Um, it's easy to replicate and copy. And uh, for each team really to identify what is your competitive advantage. It could be in the tech, in the way you do the game. It could be in the system that is built behind the game that is very hard to see, actually. So the back end more than the front end. Uh, it could be also in your team composition, how passionate or dedicated they are in the game and the soul they create around the game. So I think it's really important when launching a game or making a game. Yes, in the end of the day, the goal, ultimate goal is to make revenues. But what are you bringing here to the market? And uh, Focusing on this competitive advantage that only your team can have or can lock for a while, I think this is what also protects uh, either the game, the way you've done it, or the IP. Uh, and you can see the games that are really easy to replicate and the games that are really hard to replicate. Like I would even say like Supercell games, after the launch, it's really hard to copy because there's so much balancing, iteration, and even like the skills of a team behind. Uh, good luck for someone to replicate yeah. the success to the level, you know? So I think it's doubling down really on your strengths as a team when you make a product and you will always be seen a bit too early. And if you have, again, like in hyper-casual or hybrid casual time sensitivity, then you'd rather uh, launch quickly, right? Before you are copy and, and uh, lose the market opportunity. So that depends really on the context. Interesting. Yeah, so basically you have to, if you... If you're developing a game that really has the kind of power that you should be developing for as long as you're developing, you have to assume or hope. I mean, maybe that's that's a flag for yourself. If you don't have the thing that makes it impossible to copy within a week that somebody is seeing, kind of seeing your title. Supercell is a great example. I mean, outside of just the game mechanics, they put such a, there's such a world, um, you know, there's such a personality to their games. It's not something that you could just, create this and this is why they've they've maintained such a you know kind of their their apps maintain those positions so you have to be i guess honest with yourself which is hard i think when you're uh especially when you're in product of you know what makes your game special a lot of the times but externally to the market is is, is it as special as you think it is yeah. it's a hard kind of a hard thing to uh to come to do you think there's a way how do you assess that as uh you know, when do you know that you have something really worth dedicating time? How do you say to yourself, this is something that I know, I know has the right potential. I know it's special. I know it's not replicate, you know, replicable. So part of the practices as well. So at the beginning, when you test marketability, it's already, um, I would say, one point of data you can use. And virality as well is a good indicator. So you have a game early on, like with a concept, the setting, etc., that there's a good word of mouth virality. So that's kind of some signals already that you have something interesting that brings something new in the market, like that freshness. And player feedback. I work a lot with player feedback. So for example, in our game, when we tested it for a while in soft launch, uh, we added an in-game survey. So then we collected uh, player feedback over time, like we have thousand answers by now. And we ask questions like, what is it uh, that you like in the game or 
what is the best part you like and why? And a lot of people, for example, would say, I've never get, seen a game like this. It's like it's its own category. Or I ask questions. What other similar games have you played that is that, like our game? And people would uh, name similar games, but people would say also, I cannot name any because it's unique in its way. So you start to have signals like, okay, we created actually here something special. You look also at the early traction, like the one retention, playtime, daily playtime. So if you have a daily playtime that is above 45 minutes, it shows a very good uh, sign of engagement when you don't have yet the metrics. When people really care, also you can look at community feedback. So for example, as well with the game uh, we're making, we see in our community like people who are genuinely caring about helping like almost they want this game to happen you know so it's like okay take my time i'm gonna give feedback i will help you develop this game like really i, I want this game to exist so there's also like a caring from the community so that's that are all like taking qualitative data quantitative data mixing in all where you start to see signals that you created something that really in the eyes of your players bring value somehow to them and that's really important and i think uh when you create a product whether it's in games or uh, any other category if you bring value in the perception of players it will always translate in business because that's what people buy in the end they buy something they value and if you're doing the same a little better than your neighbor you're not necessarily adding values but you have really to understand your players like what do they care about enough that they would perceive this value in your product Sometimes it's not about just, uh, I don't know, adding a new mechanic. Sometimes it's about the whole theme and setting. Sometimes it's about adding depth in the story, like a story they care about instead of a silly story that they have seen multiple times. So maybe, I don't know, I'm just throwing a ball here, but um, maybe people are tired about the cheating stories now. Maybe they want something a, a little deeper, and especially during COVID time, Maybe uh, people like other type of stories that are a bit more, you know, positive and not so dramatic, you know? So it's, it's about really understanding what people value and care about and, and making it in your product. So how do you pick, you know, how do you go about getting your early player market? Um, whether, you know, designing the regions that you look at, if you're hand selecting or if you just kind of throw out a beta and see who signs up, what's the right way to find an audience who's going to be indicative of who you're looking for without, uh, you know, maybe creating too much bias in a direction that you don't want to be moving in. Yeah, that's really important as well, early development. So I work a lot with user research and I've been using um, a user research company called 12 Traits. Uh, I think they're a bit known by now. And we work with them very early on as well, where I didn't want to leave it to chance. So we made a game that we had an audience in mind. We even like uh, um, uh, drew some personas, but they were made up by our team. And I was like, I am not uh, a user researcher and it's made up, you know, they are not really real people. So I want to work with a user researcher where it's based on real data, things that we collected from games that exist. And what we did with them, uh, we computed with them in a dashboard, basically all the games that we think are a benchmark. And then, they could actually as well like uh, draw for us like the persona out of these uh, games like from the competition. And that helped us to identify, okay, this is our audience and we don't have to guess it. 
they are in this uh, demographic, that's the type of hobby, that's the thing they care about. These are the values they have and we just build the whole product around it. And so when we had to test our marketing early, same thing here, we tried broad, but also we tried targeted to really, what was already just in comparing the performance of the broad and targeted, and it's very clear actually that our game is very uh, well designed for this audience. And uh, it's important to know what you're doing with the marketing. If your game is mass market, like hyper casual, fine, just go broader. But it, it matters actually if your game is designed for a certain audience and you wish by, but you didn't pick, of course, an audience that is too niche. So that's also what we wanted to make sure of by looking at market data, like in this category, what is the potential like size of the audience interested in that type of games? So looking at category. And then when you go out there marketing, you make sure that you go find these players, whether in the target market, like the country, of a demographic or the point of interest to make sure that it verified, like have you designed the right game at least for this audience at first. And of course, what you try to do uh, later is to expand the audience, but it's really important at the beginning to make sure like you had designed the right game for your core audience, the one that basically will make most of the spendings and revenues and um, yeah, later expand. I think that's that's also an area that's interesting. Once you've you've designed, you've had your launch, you've hit your success, you've found your group, you're you're kind of comfortable and you're stable. You know, there's there's the question of how much does the game need to evolve, you know, both in terms of of our existing audience, are they expecting something different? Obviously the mobile space it's uh it's saturated, it's heavy. One new game comes out and it can set expectations on, you know, something else that's changed. Something as huge as COVID can hit and it changes the nature of the way people play games. How much do you feel that a product should be kind of uh, pivoting towards expanding audiences versus kind of sticking and, and catering to its, uh, you know, how, how much are you willing to change a product just to reach newer newer audiences or to optimize for an audience that maybe you've already been with for a long time? Yeah, it's a good, uh, it's a good point. I think it's really important these days as well, if you want to be viable in the long term, to really think of a scalability, um, <coughs> sorry, to think already of the scalability of the game. And um, of course, at the beginnings, you want to make sure that it covers enough of a, a market segment with your core product and core audience. But over time, this is what LiveOps is for as well. You start to expand in different points of interest. So uh, I, I think a game like for me that is fascinating has started to grow in, in the charts is Project Make Makeover. And uh, originally, yeah, it looks like a makeup game, puzzle, etc. But then you have renovation, makeup, uh, fashion, and it covers a lot of point of interest and overlap where different audience can come to the game for different points. And I think it's it's a great case uh, actually here of product and marketing. I like, uh, I don't know, makeup. This is the only game, big game with makeup uh, that is out there with a puzzle hybrid uh, genre. And I actually uh, like more renovation like in Playrix games. Then I can also go to this game or I like the dress up uh, style. And then I go to this game and it has also its unique style. So I think... Um, a way you can expand and uh, not necessarily pivot your product. You, I think it's important to keep the core, but really expand is like side features that will support uh, different audiences that can have overlap. You know, um, I don't know if 
you need to add some puzzle elements, then you'll start to attract also a puzzle audience. Um, if you start to add um, like the simulation part or social features, so it's really expanding with features that support the core of the game, I think that are important for viability. And then it allows some different, like I said, marketing strategy and messages where you can um, yeah, target some sub-segment of your game with a specific message about the social features or meeting friends, or in the game, you can trade things with friends. Well, you cannot until you have a feature, but maybe some people are more interested in the community part in the game later when you want to expand. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, it's it's kind of like mini soft launches in a sense. You have your core game and you know your core audience in your core game. And then it's, you know, whether you're getting the signal more from marketing or more from, you know, different product usage features, it's this idea of, hey, maybe there's something that, that is already within the game and within the appeal that we can expand further. And let's, you know, I think uh, I've seen a few examples where companies will, will test out features and, and kind of mini products as beta, as pre-launch and just say, do we have enough appeal? Are people excited enough about this to download? Cool. So let's develop it. Or we have, you know, five ideas. Let's figure out which one is, is most relevant for us to move ahead with instead of, you know, going with our gut and hoping for the best on, on the marketing and the performance side. Mm. All right. Awesome. Are you ready for the, uh, the quick fire round? Yes. Uh, <laughs> tell me more about it. <laughs> That's, uh, I'll ask you the questions we ask uh, everyone. They're not so hard. It's just, uh, you know, first thing that comes to your mind. Don't be shy. Mm-hmm. All right. Ready? First one. If you could give one tip to somebody who's looking to break into this world of mobile growth, what would it be? I'll play a lot of games. And uh, yeah, network, I would say. That's, that's I, uh, <laughs> I agree. It's uh, it's uh, I tell this to my family. I'm working, but I'm playing games. It's work. It's not a uh, <laughs> <laughs> your favorite resource for mobile growth. Uh, I follow um, the blog of Eric Suffer, um, mobile dev demo. That's uh, that's I think the main one. Yeah. Who is the person in the mobile community that you would most want to take for lunch, and why? Assuming it was safe to go out to lunch. Um, well, yeah, that's, uh, I don't know, actually, I think I would like to, uh, probably talk to a lead of a project makeover. That's, uh, like uh, the, the team lead or, or the product lead of project makeover. That's the one that has, I, I follow the product I followed recently. All right. Well, if anybody from a project makeover is listening, you should uh, reach out to Sophie, (laughs) get it set up. All right. Most important question. What is your favorite type of pancake? A pancake with, um, yeah, strawberry, blueberries, ice creams. Yeah. And uh, uh, syrup. I'll get everything on there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One last one. Where can people find you if they want to hear more, see what you're writing, see what you're up to? On LinkedIn, mostly. Like this is where I connect and post a lot of things. And also I have a platform of knowledge sharing that is called Rise and Play, where I put a masterclass on um, practices of leadership, where people also can find me and my contents on this website. Awesome. Sophie, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. It was great having you. Thank you. It was great to have a conversation as well. And that was Mobile Growth and Pancakes. 
Find out more about StoreMaven and how we can improve App Store performance, visit StoreMaven.com. And then make sure to search for Mobile Growth and Pancakes and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found, and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at StoreMaven, thanks for listening.